Hello, and welcome to the TOA podcast, where we invite readers to eavesdrop and interlope on conversations among the offending Adams, editors, and the authors we publish. Hello, and welcome to the TOA podcast, where we invite readers to eavesdrop and interlope on conversations among the offending Adams editors and the authors we publish. I'm your host, Nick Dominic, and first, let me apologize. The podcast is coming a little late, as most of it was recorded in September, but we, we did do it. We got it in before the year's closed. Barely. We had a lot happening, and I know for me, like last year, the year felt like it never quite started. And also like it would never quite end. But we did have a lot of great news. We had two editors have babies. And one editor had a baby that graduated from baby dumb, defeating the baby boss to the next level of toddler dumb. So congratulations there. And I bought a Subaru, which is like a baby for childless liberals. But more than all that, I want to thank you for your support this year. Despite being stuck in the bardo, we produced nine chapbooks and nine accompanying podcasts. We also proved that our model worked that we could set up a subscription service for chapbooks that people would actually subscribe and that we could create a journal that paid its authors for its work. So take that, mom and dad. Today we'll hear from Vivian Houle, the author of the chapbook Unsung Scores, and from Avni Vies, Vivian's editor for this project. As we'll learn in a bit, this is a collaborative project between poets sourced by the universe interpreting Vivian's scores. We'll start with a reading from Jeremy Hawkins and his performance of A Bright Wave Squelching. Then, Sarah Grieve in her poem after Unsung Song 30. A bright wave squelching between us after Vivian Houle. A bright wave squelching between us, I always come to an end. A modest assembly, the cloud of sediment settles, temporarily expressed as a lake, between strands that would restitch before I was a pendular motion, with its standing habits like semi-precious metals. In another valley of the moon, we'd do best to leave alone, which is a way of saving pools in any other state are the first place of translation. You brighten the back and forth, though at scale I could be seen over some call for the grounds of discovery, to dog across the opening with purpose, be it a lucky mode or more serious trades than as a bell calling. Where just a filament was enough, I lit a lamp on a corner, a field from their empty well. Poem after unsung song number 30. Baby follows the bees, those rapscallion, wanderers, equers of vibration and purveyors of stings. That bite she knows nothing of, her scant eight months, nor honey yet because renegade spores can wreck her system. Still, she notices bee spirals, shifts on her seat to see them alight to a daisy, yellow landing pad, gummy with pollen, then off. Both baby and bees choosing a hard turn, Chris to cross, zig, meander. If you listen to the air, wait in the beat between wings and steps, you can hear sprouting. Cells near now, just about, they're unfurling. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Sarah. Now I talk to Avni Vias about Vivian Houle's unsung scores. We're here to talk about Vivian Houle's graphic 
fuck, I already screwed it up. We're here <laughs> to talk about Vivian Hool's Unsung Songs, a really fascinating project we're, we're doing this month. Um, I think there's, there's all sorts of different ways into kind of the conversation around this. I'm really excited about the book because um, I know that we've talked about this before, but one of the kind of the Offending Adam 1.0 thing, uh, its mission was to sort of rethink relationship between editor, writer, reader. This project really does a fantastic job, I think, of doing that. So, Avni, why don't you just kind of start by telling us what this big, beautiful, unwieldy thing is? Sure. Uh, so this is a collection of graphic scores, which is something that I am new to. Um, and Vivian's are the first that I have encountered of their kind. Um, they are, I guess, if I were to define it for our listeners, um, they appear as uh, visual representation of potential sound or song. And um, Vivian's collection is called Unsung Songs, um, a collection of graphic scores. So um, I encountered Vivian's work via Instagram, sort of doom scrolling, and then suddenly not, not so doomed all of a sudden with these beautiful images. Um, these stark line drawings caught my attention. And um, in addition to just the images themselves, I was really compelled by the framing. These are graphic scores and then they're unsung songs. So that title alone was really inviting as a way of like reimagining what I was seeing. So um, suddenly I'm invited not just to like take in this art object, I'm invited to think about it as something else, as a piece of music that hasn't been performed yet, or, you know, because we're poets, as poems that exist um, in line work, but um, maybe in a nonverbal sense. So uh, these pieces struck me immediately as expressive, uh, creative, lyrical, and uh, sort of standalone. Like these, if you look at the range of work in this collection, um, we see the virtue of the line expressing so much. And as somebody who does not have any sort of like art history background, um, I was really struck at how like starkly these, and, and clearly how, um, how clearly these images communicate. Um, they communicate tension, release, um, expression, uh, interrelatedness, and um, they really invite a reader or a viewer to play with imagination. So um, I was I was immediately struck, and I wondered whether we could do something poetic with with Instagram. And here we are. <laughs> so I get one of these graphic scores, and if I'm like John Laurie, then I just like sort of blow on a horn and make sounds and it is about kind of an artist putting something down on the page and then and then the musician uh interacting with that to then create is yes. this the sort of idea of it i think what's what's interesting too here right so what you did is you you found these um these graphic scores but they were only really kind of half the book we've got a, a wonderful i just had a email come in that took 
they were they were only like half the book. So we've got this wonderful sort of collaboration between kind of poet and uh, Houle's work and um, interpretation, very much the same way that a musician would interpret one of these graphics scores. We, we have a bunch of poets doing that. So Vivian went out and she found a bunch of poets and said, hey, make make poems for these or how did that happen? Uh, that happened by way of TOA and a little editorial manipulation. Um, and so this was this was the fun part. Um, I don't know if you remember this meeting, Nick, when we were all kind of sitting around and talking about like, okay, well, what do we do? How do we, as editors, um, engage these these really cool art objects? You know, we're seeing them as just cool art, and it's very tempting to say like, cool, let's put it on our website. And like, and you know, I think it was Andrew who said these are standalone poems. We can publish, you know, a set of these and call each of them a poem if we've got sort of a, a framework of considering them like lyrically. Um, and I, I loved that approach, but I was also thinking there's, here's this opportunity for um, poetry to do something improvisational. Um, and Vivian's work after speaking with her, uh, her, her work is primarily through improvisational music. Uh, so she's an improvisational vocalist. She works with um, an orchestra and she's, uh, I think she's done not these pieces, but a, another piece of hers um, has been this collaborative experiment, experimented work. Um, so this is very much her wheelhouse and it's one that I think poets would be, you know, maybe excited by, but also intimidated by. I think um, experimental and avant-garde poetics is something that we think that we get, but I know I'm scared of it um, just because like, I am so afraid of abusing or um, misunderstanding language that um, anything that, that goes sort of beyond my control, I get scared in composition, right? So the idea of jazz is at once really beautiful and terrifying. Like it could go all sorts of wonky ways. And am I gonna miss something because I mishear it or don't understand where its beauty comes from? So um, to me, this really felt like a cool opportunity to invite poets uh, to engage in this improvisational act, to play, do sort of a call and response. Um, so I put out a call on Facebook and just sort of reached out to my community. I thought that would be easiest. Like, let's just see what happens. Um, hey, poets and writers, you don't have to have a lot of expertise. I'm looking for people to kind of just play poems. And um, if you're interested, reach out. So I heard from about 17 people, you know, in the first couple of days. And I was really surprised and excited. I reached out to a couple of people who, um, have kind of demonstrated some desire with like collaboration in the past or are open to experimentation in some way. Um, and thankfully, you know, the response was, was just so exciting. People were open, people were game. They were just like, this sounds like fun. Um, and, you know, here I, I'm on the other end. Like if somebody reached out to me and was like, do you wanna play poems? I'm like, yeah, but I'm gonna mess it up, right? Like that's my fear, but uh, these poets, really rose to the challenge. And then um, I just kind of, I assigned a single piece to each writer 
and reached out individually and said like, here's your piece, here's, you know, how to think about it maybe, and, you know, go have a, have a blast, have fun. And then email me within the week with whatever you come up with. So I tried to leave it open, um, knowing that some writers really enjoy that improvisational experience of just putting pen to page or just writing in one go and seeing what happens. Um, and I know that that sensation can be really self-conscious for other writers. So I wanted to like give writers about a week to figure out what they wanted to do with the piece that they came up with. Um, and you can tell that some people, you know, revised and really clarified and, you know, might've written a bit at a time. Um, other people just sort of set a timer for 10 minutes and like went for it. Um, so we got a range of writers. We got people with books and PhDs. We got people who um, are teachers, people who are performers and enthusiasts. Um, so I was really excited because we heard from people kind of all over in terms of expertise. Um, and, you know, people who were like, well, I'm not a poet. I, I tend to focus on this other medium. Is that going to be a problem? Hell no. Dive in. This is the point. So um, kind of making it centralizing collaboration as, as the point of what we were doing um, afforded just so many cool responses. So we, we got about a dozen poems back, which in terms of corralling poets over the course of a week is like magnificent. So I'm just, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm like awestruck. I'm so stoked by the people who were excited to participate and um, what they came up with. Uh, and so we've got like a dozen poems and we've got 31, I believe, um, unsung songs. So that means that there are several of these art pieces that don't have lyrics, or not lyrics, but they don't have poems to go with them. So I'm hoping that as readers encounter these images, that they are so inspired to maybe think about what these intersections, collaborations, and possibilities could be. So that's sort of how it all kind of orchestrated. I, I love that. And I love the sort of continuing of the project kind of going going forth, right? So if readers are interested in sending us their responses to these, you know, please do, because I think we would love to host them both on the site and then on our social and, and all of that. Um, with the, I, I've got some quite, isn't it, is it an ekphrastic? Is it ekphrastic poetry or is it different? I, I think you could think, yeah, I think you could say it was ekphrastic. Yeah. Uh, um, I just want to say ekphrastic. I just you, want to be, yeah. You, I yes, you should. The word. Okay. You want to say it together? Uh, ek, yeah, sure. Okay, one, two, three. Ekphrastic. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, if it's if it is a score to the thing that I'm performing, then it's not ekphrastic, right? It's a script. Ooh. Well, I'm wondering if it's if it's a standalone piece of art to which I am responding, then ekphrasis is taking place. So we, so actually Vivian and I were talking about this and, um, you know, she was really excited to know that there were like writers and poets engaging verbally uh, with these images because she's mostly heard from musicians who have wanted to take these graphic scores and sort of provide um, interpretive musical components, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but she hasn't heard from writers. So then she was thinking, well, okay, because I already work with musicians, wouldn't it be cool if we were able to work with some of the writing we receive and extend that into some sort of lyrical play when we do future improvisations? So then the then it becomes like a lyrical score to a graphic score. And then it's like the ekphrastic mirror looking at itself in a hall of mirrors. Oh, I love this. I love yeah. this. And does, does the galaxy implode at that point then? Yeah. It's just like uh, the first Star Trek where they, the first Star Trek and the kind of remakes where they, they, they go and uh, what is it's not an event horizon some sort of singularity occurs right and the the whole planet sucks in on itself and Spock's got to go down and rescue his parents I like uh, the idea that, that we're possibly creating some kind of singularity or black hole in which an entire universe collapses by by way of these graphic scores and the poems that emerge from that. Uh, this is a, this is again one of the main purposes behind the sort of journal is to just create as much sort of universal chaos as possible. Um, what I I was struck and you kind of already spoke to this I think in some ways talking about the the range of writers that came to the project so people who don't consider themselves poets. Uh, I know uh, a couple of the people or people that I'm very familiar with as poets who have a book, in some cases, several books. Um, there's such a, just an extraordinary range in how people chose to respond to these, these sort of unsung songs. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about about that? What was yeah. surprising? What was expected? What was unexpected? Maybe were, were there poets who voiced this? Is, I think I share your anxiety. If this was a project that kind of fell into my lap, I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't want to screw it up. Yeah. Uh, because these things are so beautiful. As soon as I attach my dumb words to it, I make everything dumb. Okay. Um, so yeah, what, what was kind of expected, unexpected? And then if you had any of these kind of discussions with the poets, the writers that you were working with? So I tried to limit the actual conversations I had with the writers because I didn't want to influence their process. I really wanted this to be, you know, if there were any questions about how to how to do it or how to go about it, I'd be happy to brainstorm. But, um, you know, my job was not to tell them whether what they submitted was any good. That's okay. not the point. Um, I think for some writers, and I know for myself as a writer, that's still an anxiety when you're putting your work out into the world, does this actually hold up? Is this yeah. enough? Um, but what I think is so fascinating about this project is that we know where it came from, right? Like there is these images, these unsung songs can serve as a starting point. So while I don't understand, or while I might not have the imaginative capacity to take the same journey that one of the poets may have taken um, to get from you know, image to artifact of poem, I know where it came from, like, uh, and I'm thinking, what were to what would happen if we removed the images and then we just had a collection of poems? How do these poems speak to each other? Do they speak to each other? Um, I think we'd have like a very fascinating collection of verse, um, and there it feels like there's a smattering of something there for everyone. Uh, but the fact that they're all unified by these images and speaking further with Vivian, you know, she sort of helped me embrace the singularity chaos as well, where, you know, good isn't the point where she's, you know, she's like, I don't have artistic training. This isn't 
something that she studied for a long time. This is just this, I'll, you know, I won't spoil it because she's got a really wonderful way that she frames her process. Um, but the, the range of what we get and kind of where we go within the poems is so fascinating because we don't have a singular author kind of guiding mm -hmm. us through a project. We don't have like our normal artifices of navigating the poems is different. We're using the images almost, I don't want to say as a handrail because each image is so different. Each image is so evocative on its own. Um, but instead what we're left with is just all of these possibilities and what our poets have offered us are, you know, a dozen of infinite possibilities of what could emerge from this. So, um, it, you know, I, I wonder if we had more time or if, you know, I controlled the universe, wouldn't it be so cool to ask each writer, I, I think in one, in one circumstance, in one situation, one of the writers had received one of the images and said, okay, here's a poem. And then the next day said, wait, here's another poem. Um, you pick whichever one you want to include. So I loved that these images were evoking multiple responses. Um, and I mean, I think Dinah's in on it too. Like she would totally be down to write some of these poems as well. That's uh, the chaos is taking place <laughs> outside of my, my house window. Um, it's stirring and, and it's it's roused the, the dog, yeah. The cacophony is welcome. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. We're kind of, we're, we're moving in a totally different way from our normal chapbook collection. Um, we have, we have some of the readers, you know, they who recorded their own work uh, that we get to include in this podcast, which is wonderful because we get to hear the poems held in their own voices. Um, we've got a range of writers, uh, and then we've got Vivian's art kind of holding it all together. So this is collaborative editing. This is collaborative writing and composition. So I'm, I'm super excited just because of how many different origin points this collection actually has. It's, you know, all of the poets, it's the artist, it's us. And so our triangle is now like a dodecahedron all of a sudden. Also with this, just to talk about the creation of this book in terms of, I just keep thinking back to like, so if this project had a traditional arc, it would be me and Vivian being friends. She would be making these things. And then I'd write some poems in, in uh, collaboration, ekphrastic poems in relationship to those then we would put it together, then we would start to send it out. Uh, and then six months to a year later, um, you know, somebody would send me a note saying they don't want it. I mean, this is usually kind yeah. of the life cycle of chapbooks. Um, and and what's happening here is, you know, we, we've got a person, an artist, Vivian Houle, who's not really kind of of the poetry world, who's kind of discovered by chance, then we've got, you know, your uh, kind of sorting the project and, and asking for writers to respond to it. Again, by chance, I mean, there's all these black box algorithms at play there, um, right? Who knows why Facebook put this in front of Jeremy Hawkins and not some other sort of poet in your, your sphere or, 
any of the, Sandra Simmons or any of the wonderful writers who, who took this on. So there's so much chance here. I wanted to, I think, kind of talk to you about your editorial eye, how you've been applying it to the project, particularly too, because Vivian isn't in the gang, right? And so you've got all of these beautiful images she produced, all of these these beautiful poems that, that these writers produced. Um, how are you ordering stuff? What are you thinking about there? The actual sort of construction of a book, I think for poets, you know, as opposed to prose writers, is such like you write the book and then ordering the book is another headache, right? I remember yeah. with my stuff, it took a year after I wrote the book to order right. it and then editors re-edit. And so how are, how are you all kind of tackling that? I mean, in the same way that, I, I think that was a beautiful problem to get to avoid, right? Because we're working with this nonverbal form um, and there's just an associative logic that comes to arranging. And for the most part, you know, Vivian submitted the images in just an order of images that were scanned randomly. So Chance was really our friend here. Um, and I, I think I really wanted to embrace how, how Chance was working. So, you know, chaos, like, yes, I could reach out to Jeremy um, or Sandra and just be like, hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, anticipate a rejection, but, um, but surprisingly get an, you know, get a yes, which is, mm you know, Chance doing its beautiful thing. And this is one of those, I hate, I, I hate the cheesiness of what I'm about to say. So I need you to laugh at me. Sure. Okay. I'm um, preparing, preparing good. myself for your, your, your happiness. Yeah. So the universe worked it out. No. I know, I know, I know, oh. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. Oh. Um, <laughs> so the, the role that I played was more just like, I feel like I, I handled more of a secretarial role than an editorial one. So, okay. uh, so a lot of it was just, you know, creating an editor's preface, reaching out to the authors, um, managing when I was getting stuff back and who I needed to nudge. Um, the arrangement was kind of a secondary consideration for me because I, there were some, I mean, you know, I think there was like a total of 38, 37 images. And so there were a couple that I just sort of cut because, um, you know, Wit had said something like this in one of her editorial conversations where, you know, where do you decide what's, what stays and what goes? Um, a lot of times it was the pieces that I, I tried to go with what was most evocative. Like I, I tried to think of invitation as the lens, as I was like scanning through the images and I was thinking, okay, um, does this feel like an invitation for reading? Does this feel like an invitation for singing or composition? So the, and, and all of them in their own way certainly did. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there would be a couple that might share similar shapes, patterns, or tensions. And uh, one was, you know, slightly more evocative than the other. And again, that's just totally subjective, right? right. So um, the editorial eye, I feel like really did not play as much of a structural role as chaos and chance did. So um, my job was just kind of putting things in their place. Um, and really this came down to the, the, the collaboration that we had no control over, which is so delightful. 
I love the, the idea too of, of the editorial role being just purely facilitation, right? Yeah. So it's not really uh, manifesting a hand in the manuscript, but just sort of making it so the, the manuscript is possible. And that's yeah. Really, yeah. really cool that the universe did that for you. Um, that <laughs> so sorry. I, no, I, I, you know, back to, to, you know, Star Trek, I, I just, I would prefer just to think we're living in a simulation. And so the simulation just figured it the fuck out this week, other weeks, it doesn't. Right. right. Um, and that's, that's kind of a, a beautiful thing. I think um, also too, you know, you're cold calling an artist about a project. And I think there's got to be a lot of trust that, that Vivian had for you and your interest in the, the work and to, to kind of take it from this one thing and bring it into an, an, a new place. Tell me, I, I imagine we'll hear about some of this in, in y'all's conversation to come, but tell me a little bit about the kind of process of working with her about sort of gaining trust, um, you know, I I get so many sort of strange solicitations on Instagram all the time. And if you're sort of a person who's producing content on Instagram, there's all sorts of shit that's coming into your, people are sliding into your DMs all the time. <laughs> so uh, yeah, how did how did this happen? And, and why was it that you were so able to kind of quickly develop this wonderful working relationship? I don't, I don't exactly know. I, oh, when I universe, bro. universe did it. It wasn't me. Um, no, I did slide into the DMs, but really it was, you know, it was months before I brought up this idea to our editorial roundtable. Uh, and it was kind of me just reaching out and just thinking like, I think, I think this, this concept is really cool. It got me thinking of a scenic writing and haptic writing um, where the motion expression tension and sort of the physical manifestation of the line um, carries a poetic or lyrical quality. And um, I was just really drawn to kind of its nonverbal communication. Um, I keep thinking of that episode of Parks and Rec where um, Tom Haverford, Aziz Ansari's character, discovers abstract art for the first time. And he like, goes to the local college and commissions a piece by a student artist. And um, when he comes back to the office, he's like, I don't know, there's something so satisfying about it. It's just like the red and the orange speak together and they just sit there. Um, it kind of felt like a similar moment where, um, you know, the line is doing a, a type of expression. Uh, and I, I wondered, I didn't know, I, I really didn't expect Vivian to have any sort of response at all because I'm a stranger from Florida reaching out to this artist in British Columbia. Um, mm -hmm. So I definitely preface that in, in reaching out, like, hey, I know this is strange, but uh, I'm a poet, I'm really drawn to your work. Um, it reminds me of these things. I, I just wanted to like, you know, my, my first initial uh, attempts at reaching out were just complimentary, purely like, I'm inspired by what you do. Um, mostly because how often, when someone slides into your DMs, do they ever say like, you're inspiring or you've done something or, you know, it's never like, I want something from you. So um, I tried to move through these conversations as kind of openly as possible because I recognize that 
in addition to these pieces, what I'm also asking from her is her time and attention. Um, and these things aren't free and these things aren't anything I want to take for granted. So mm -hmm. there was just sort of a real humility, I think, in like, a, in reaching out to a stranger and knowing that, you know, nothing could come of it and that would be fine. Um, but also something very cool might happen. And uh, because Vivian had already done some collaboration because she was a collabor like a collaborative vocalist to begin with, um, the questions around poetry were really ripe for me. Um, and whether or not, you know, I got a response from her, I was, I was inspired. I was talking to my friends about her work and saying like, I just discovered this artist on Instagram and I don't know what to think about it, but I think it's really cool. Um, and then sort of learning more about her work and history just sort of reinforced that for me, um, that there's this deep tradition of collaboration. Uh, and I, in my mind, that tradition of collaboration requires a lot of trust, right? It requires, you know, trusting the, another artist that you're working with, um, regardless of the product that comes out of it. Um, and, and really just kind of immersing yourself in wanting to, to create with, alongside somebody else. So I think it was a fortunate, it was very fortunate that she already sort of had that built in into her background and personality. And um, so that was, that was really awesome. I, I don't, it, and weirdly, I think it was easier because it was a stranger. I think if it were, you know, a famous poet or um, someone on the up and up in our, in our circles, I would feel very self-conscious sort of reaching mm -hmm. out and saying like, hey, I'm a nobody. Uh, can we talk about poems together? Because um, like how many, has that ever happened to you? Has anyone ever like reached out and been like, hey, let's talk poems together and it's a stranger? No, the strangers that reach out to me on Instagram are mostly trying to, to tell me about Bitcoin and how I can make my next fortune. But um, no, no, I mean, that's, it's, it's never happened. I think you had sort of a line in, in there as you were talking, the sort of questions around or about poetry are sort of really ripe for me. Uh, did you mean that sort of in terms of collaboration or is there something else? Um, originally I saw these pieces and I thought like, what would my students do with them? If I mm. were to just use it as a jumping off point, there's, um, you know, the photographer, Edward Weston, um, he's like a, he's a black and white photographer and he'll like take photos of, if you Google him, like you'll see, I think it's like pepper number 30 or something like that. Um, he'll like photograph fruit and vegetables and just these really stark lighting conditions. And then you, mm. Um, are left with these almost optical illusions, like these beautiful um, sensual shapes that are connected and disconnected. So there's like a famous photograph of a bell pepper that I used to show to my classes. Um, and, you know, students wouldn't know what they were looking at necessarily. They would think like, is this, is this, this is way too sensual to be mm -hmm. something, you know, safe for work. And um, there were all of these questions around what is it? Um, and then, you know, they never really got the answer for a while. So they had to sort of like spend time in that uh, curiosity. Um, and in a, in a similar way, to me, the line work of Vivian's graphic scores were unmistakable. They were, um, you could see these furious scribbles in some, you could see these painstaking spirals in others, um, these sort of like graceful layers of repetition um, and one of the phrases that she used to describe where this material came from was sort of repetition and density. 
um, which to me felt very poetic. Like how often do we sit with a stanza that we want to have a certain type of gravitas or weight and how do we need to like diffuse it just enough or how do we need to open it up in order for it to do better work than it's doing. And so there's kind of lyrical subjectivity was very present. Um, I'm wondering if that. No, that's, that's, that's perfectly it. And I've, I've, uh, I've brought up this bell pepper. Yeah, what do you think of it? I mean, it, there is something incredibly sensual about yeah. it. Um, sort of wet bodies in, in embrace or, uh, you know, wet, wet genitals even. So there's, yeah, there's, there's something there. Um, I love that. I love this idea of uh, repetition and density to, to be kind of descriptors for both the, the graphic scores or these unsung songs, and then also to the stuff that's coming up and kind of being produced in response to it. What, um, what feels kind of dangerous about this manuscript? What, um, what, what excites you in a kind of, I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about is kind of the lack of control uh, about kind of the process and both in these things and, and the work that comes back, facilitation as opposed to sort of what um, captaining the ship. So are there kind of particular poems that just you felt, um, you know, I'm not asking you to pick favorites, but poems that kind of stuck out in your brain when you just got back and you're like, oh, oh this is this is not what I expected at all, but this is totally what it should have been. Again, maybe kind of thinking about that chaos factor. I think uh, in a few examples that I have in mind, um, you know, I'm viewing this collaboration as something I can't control simply because like there, we are facilitating, we're not shaping. Um, but how, how poets often leaned on a guiding metaphor or a guiding um, narrative to engage the image itself. And uh, then there were other poets who really wanted to engage the tangle of what they were visually seeing on the page. Um, and to me, I feel like the experience of those poems without the image is kind of radically different than seeing them side by side. So that's sort of why I'm very excited about these recordings from the poets themselves, kind of bookending our conversation because they'll they'll invite they'll invite you know the imagination without knowing what we're looking at, right? Like. Mm -hmm quite know what we're supposed to see when we hear these words. Um, so that feels dangerous. Uh, the fact that, you know, the poem and the image stand alone and yet when they come together, they create something, they create a new mutation. Um, that's sort of a beautiful danger. Um, I hope what our readers take away from this is kind of, the invitation uh, into this collaborative exchange, because I think that's sort of the, the point of it all is, is that, you know, when we create in attunement with one another, this really beautiful surprise happens that no one really owns. Um, 
and we can say, yeah, so-and-so is the author of this poem, but, um, you know, we're all authors of that chaos, right, when we're projecting onto it. Um, and that feels, I think that's like a good kind of danger, using that power of projection, like our own imaginations and our own imaginative capacities, um, and letting them be tested. And, and that's what I hope with this piece is like, I want our imaginations to feel a little sore afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I think that that also feels like a really good, good place to end. Um, to everyone's sore imagination. Uh, and I, 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 you just had so many kind of wonderful lines talking about the work that I just jotted down. But I think something that I will carry with me for the rest of the day, probably for the rest of the week, and then hopefully for a very, very long time after that is that uh, sort of good isn't the point. And I, I think that's a really good thing to remind ourselves in sort of art making, right? That it doesn't have to be good. It shouldn't be good. We'll take a short break, then Vivian Hu will join Avni Vyas to talk about unsung scores. You, ha- you were talking about Instagram and we were sort of talking about kind of the surprise of connecting that way. Yeah. I mean, I just, I I just kind of joined in on Instagram back in 218. And um, I'd never done, I'm not really that much into social media, but someone said, Oh, you should try this, you know, it was going to be to promote my counseling practice, actually. Oh, wow. (laughs) And then I ended up, I think the first posting I did, it was just of these, these sketches that these drawings, these scores that I'd start, I'd started working on. And I got such wonderful, warm, um interesting feedback from people you know from all over the world and i was like whoa this is really really cool and then i started looking at what other people are doing you know had similar um styles and and it just i love the conversation and the sharing that started happening through that through that and so yeah it it was like super surprising super delightful and before you know it, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to have one Instagram account just for my scores. <laughs> and then the other one's supposed to be for my counseling practice. So separate it out, right? And um, so when you contacted me, I mean, yeah, it was just another, I've had a few people just out of the blue, you know, say, mostly musicians who say, oh, I love your scores, you know, could I interpret one um, and post this online or, you know, and so I've started having that kind of interest. And so then when I got yours, I was like, oh my goodness, poetry, this is great. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect sort of segue into uh, what I was gonna ask, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, so I was, I was gonna sort of ask you about how these scores came about. And I mean, it, I think it's so wonderful that um, and I'm, I'm a little relieved, right, that I'm not the only person in the world that's reached out to you because of these wonderful scores. Um, I would feel a little like invasive otherwise, but it's, it's clear that they're having an impact. And I love that musicians are drawn to collaborate with them. How did these scores come together for you? How did you begin drawing uh-huh. in this particular way? Yeah, well, thanks. And I really appreciate that question. And also just this interview, because I have, you know, it just made me think 
the last couple of days I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I need to reflect on that a little bit. Nobody's really asked me anything about, you know, how it all started. Um, how did it start? That's it's kind of a couple places. Um, I, I like I don't have any uh, visual art background or training at all. And um, that's why this was also surprising too. <laughs> to get positive feedback um, from from people on Instagram. But I guess um, a couple things. One is, and I just, I did take notes because I was like, I'm gonna forget some of the things I wanna tell you. Um, it's it's kind of, it's, it's hard for me to even know where to start. Um, in this form, I guess, you know, like the square form where I'm doing squiggly lines on watercolor paper, it's start, I started doing that about in October 2018. And um, where it really started originally, I guess, was from my journals, because I used to journal a lot, um, write in journals since I was 12 years old. I was, you know, one of those dear diary. <laughs> And I journaled my whole life. And so, yeah, I was really drawn to words and thought maybe I'd become a writer. And I just, I loved words. And I was doing things like writing little poems and tucking them away in secret places. And actually one of the, the funniest places is where I, I do that is I'd climb trees and I'd have these little um, poems or phrases. I don't even actually remember what I wrote on them. And I put them on these little pieces of paper and I'd roll them up and I'd hide them in the cracks in this tree. And I did that in different parts of different forests. That's incredible. Know. That's amazing. I don't know why or what I had written on them. It reminds me of a uh, poet, Mary Oliver. Um, I know Mary Oliver, yeah. Yeah, so when Mary Oliver, you know, is considered a nature poet and apparently when she would go on walks to sort of develop, I don't know that the, they were walks to develop her poems, but some a, a lot of times the poems would arrive. Um, but she kept notebooks in certain trees on oh. along her path, yeah. So oh, I, I love that you're already in conversation with this kind of uh, arboreal writing process. That's so cool. <laughs> Wow, I didn't know that about about her. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, I was always very um, drawn to trees. Uh, it was a place of refuge for me as a child. My grandmother's tree next to her house, and just the forests around my place. And so, yes, that's that's one of my earliest, you know, memories of um, kind of finding a way, a creative expression. It was through through words and through writing. And that continued, you know, with my journaling, and then that evolved into um, writing, you know, lyrics started to kind of emerge as I became more interested in voice. I started singing a little bit more when I was in like 14, 15 years old. And so, you know, starting to merge the, the, the lyrics and the words that I was writing and, and the music that I was interested in. And so, um, so that that was kind of part of it and um but where what happened at one point in my life around 2008 between 2008 and 2015 um i had some really you know strong physical challenges health challenges 
and um, a series of, of big losses in my life. And it really was a, a kind of a rupture and I had to take uh, some time out and recovery time and it really um, changed a lot of things for me. And one thing that changed is, you know, I, I literally and, and figuratively, I guess, I, I lost my words. So like for about a year, um, because of the physical uh, health challenges I was having, I had a hard time writing or reading. Um, and it really, um, yeah, like I wasn't able to, to perform or sing anymore. Um, and so, um, yeah, I lost my words. And that was, a, it was really hard. It was really a sad thing for me because they had been, you know, something that I was, that would just flow, like these lyrics and these, and I, I did a lot of songwriting and recorded songs and stuff before that. And so um, through that period, as part of the recovery, process, I, you know, I would still try to kind of document what was going on in my life and write in my journal, but it was really frustrating because it didn't flow. The words weren't there. It was hard to write. And so just kind of out of frustration, I guess, a necessity, I don't know, the words and the lines just kind of started turning into lines, right? And just scribbles and you're, you're nodding because maybe you've had the same experience. Yeah, I, I, really love this uh, kind of organic relationship between handwriting and expression. And I mm -hmm. feel like what you're describing, I'm nodding so heavily because like, I'm just now thinking about what we're doing as a counterpoint to where this journey started and sort of seeing these parts reflect each other and noticing that, you know, and I'm taking notes, right, as you're speaking. So I'm, I'm very much, um, you know, wanting to use my words to document this moment for us. Um, but that uh, relationship between uh, handwritten expression and um, and sort of physical expression that, you know, I, um, mm -hmm. my first book uh, is, is out or it's going to be out in later in October. And um, it was written, I mean, it was primarily drafted ambidextrously. So I wrote it by hand um, and I would alternate which hand would write. Wow. Yeah, so it was it, it was a very visceral process. Um, and it was really surprising because as somebody who's really bound up in words, uh -huh. uh, having them emerge in handwritten form um, was both liberating and challenging for mm -hmm. A, sort, a whole host of reasons, but uh, mm -hmm. the poems written by my non-dominant hand um, really resembled these organic shapes and, you know, creatures and beings and sort of energies of their own volition. Um, and so I'm, I'm nodding because what you're saying is, is really resonating with something in my own experience. Wow. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Okay. I want to see those. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll have to email you. I'll send you kind of some screenshots of uh, the writing in progress. It was really fascinating. Um, so the, so yeah. you, you so kind that, of, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so that's just how, how these lines started was just like words that weren't working turned into scribbles and then the scribbles you know, turned into, turned into, you know, forms and, and gestures. And again, it was, yeah, it was very visceral. It was a very physical. Sometimes it was just like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and 
but then after a while I noticed like I just started enjoying it and finding it very soothing and oddly satisfying in a way you know that was reminiscent of when I was able to write lyrics and songs and so I started doing it more and more and that you know um was wonderful to finally you know have something that was but it just felt like scribbling still it still does actually still feel like scribbling to me but but in a in a good way and um it gave me uh, an idea of how i could kind of as i was coming out of this uh tough time and wanting to get out and connect more with other musicians and perform again how i could start doing that and so i had the idea of applying for a grant that would allow me to write graphic scores graphic notated scores um, for myself because i'm an improvising vocalist and an orchestra and i just had this image of a large orchestra i think it's because i saw Maya Red Key, who's an amazing vocal improviser and composer. I saw this one clip of her on YouTube and she's doing this aria, but it's with, you know, extended vocal technique and just totally out there with a, this, this massive orchestra in, in Norway, I believe. And I thought, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'd like to do something like that. Because <laughs> so, I had sung with larger ensembles, improvising ensembles, um, performing graphic scores before, not a ton, but a, a little bit, in particular this one by Barry Guy, wonderful, beautiful, I wish I had it here. It's in, you can find it in Notations 21. So Notations 21, I don't know if you know that book, but it's a collection of graphic scores. I think there's a hundred scores by composers all over the world, and it's uh, was edited by Teresa Sauer, or Sauer, I think that's how you say her last name. And so there's lots of examples in that book, Notations 21, which is inspired by John Cage's notations originally. Um, and that, that score that I had performed with the Now Orchestra uh, is, is in there by Barry Guy. And so, yeah, I guess it was that experience from before, seeing Maya perform, and I was like, okay, I could maybe do something like this. So I, I applied for the grant, I got the grant, which was just like surprising. And then I started working with a mentor and, and trying to, I was like, okay, I think I wanna do this, but I don't even know what I'm gonna do. So um, yeah, the, the first project actually didn't involve any of my drawing, it was, it's maybe a little side thing, but it was um, my my father's handwriting uh, when, after he'd had a surgery for throat cancer and he couldn't speak. And the only thing he could move was just a little was his right hand. And he couldn't see what he was writing either. And that's how he communicated with us uh, in the ICU and for months. And these papers of these notes were just so... Um, beautiful visually but also just the content and so I saved some and unbeknownst to me my sister saved some as well and then um, anyway uh, I wasn't able to look at those for about five years after my dad passed um, but when this when I got this grant and I was thinking well what material um, might I use I thought I'll, I'll, st I'll start with that so I did create a big piece with that called First Words, and that was performed uh, with um, 
the Now Orchestra again in Vancouver. That's a, an improvising orchestra. And also with an improvising orchestra in uh, Montreal called Super Musique. And so there I got to do that improvising vocals with all the, you know, extended stuff um, with a large ensemble that interpreted these scores. And I collaborated, you know, in terms of collaboration with a filmmaker, um, Pierre Hébert from Montreal, who helped me um, uh, put this into uh, a, a film score, actually. So it was a moving graphic score. It was a film. Um, so that was the first piece, yeah. And then the, and then, I, oh, did you have a question? I should take a breath. No, no, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I'm listening, I'm taking notes, I'm soaking it all in. There's so much I want to say, but I want to wait for you to be done. Um, I, uh, when, I don't, I lost my father this year and uh, he, sorry. it's okay. It's, well, hearing you talk about your father's handwriting, um, that was his, my father's form of communication as well. And one of the things that I miss the most is his handwriting, which was just so kind of sharp and pristine. And, you know, he was so meticulous um, in his written expression. Um, <clears throat> so to kind of uh, see him write in moments uh, when he did not have the strength to communicate, but that was his, his the way in which he felt most comfortable. Um, there was, it, it felt like something was opening, you know, there was like a, a strange, um, surprising opening where his like, a, a similar sort of loss of control, but but the desire to communicate felt stronger. So this, um, I, I think that's really marvelous that uh, first words comes from this experience for you. I think that's really beautiful. So I was just kind of, <laughs> excited to listen to it yeah yeah it was yeah it was uh, an opening of course that's why it was called why people say why do you call it first words and it was because it was the first time some of those things that he wrote he had he expressed you know and a lot of it was around his um feelings for his family and how important family is and his love for us and also he said this one thing about me having to sing, which was really touching. Yeah, so wow. um, things, yeah, th that um, didn't flow easily from my father to, to say. Yeah. So when he had this, you know, um, experience of not uh, being scared too that his life was ending, could be ending. Yeah, he wrote some really beautiful things and um, so visually too it was yeah very very stunning piece and I'm so grateful to Pierre Hebert for helping me put that together and um, I hope it has more life it's only been performed a couple times but um, hopefully uh, it will have more life and um, so that was the first piece and then you know I had committed to doing um, another one so I thought well what other material and then I thought of um, really where those lines, the first inspiration for some of those squiggly lines comes from is um, that, well, while I was recovering, while I was ill, it was a period for about four years, I was, I was quite ill. Um, I was trying to sort out what was going on and you know, it's hard to keep track of things. My brain was pretty muddled. And so I kept um, track of things in these calendars and I just, I thought I'd just show you like, wow. you know, the, just, and it's just, you know, writing out s symptoms 
um, doctor's appointments, uh, medications that I was taking, um, and it's just a total, it's just chaos, right? And it's just density yeah. and repetition. And it's a bit, it was overwhelming. And again, it's the kind of thing that it was traumatic that time in my life. So I wasn't able to look at those. I couldn't even have them in the same room as me for years. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe I could find a way to transform that trauma and that pain. Of course, being a therapist, I'm always interested in that intersection of um, transmutation. Is that the right word? Yes. You know? Yeah, so. yeah, that's transmutation. brilliant. Yeah. So this idea of transformation uh, feels so kind of at its heart poetic too, right? Um, you know, poets are working within the heart of metaphor, which is a transubstantiation of sorts. One thing becomes another. And, uh, you know, when when it happens well, um, the, you know, Emily Dickinson says, like, you know, a poem when the top of your head sort of pops off, right? And that's, that's what a poem feels like. And that's how you know you're encountering a poem, right? Um, but this idea of transformation um, and transmutation is both like a, as an artistic act, but a therapeutic act, I think is, I, I didn't realize how deeply entwined that was in your work. I'm so excited. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's really wonderful. Uh, well, you, you know, and, and yeah, so I, I was, I was kind of overwhelmed because I had like four years of calendars and I thought, okay, what do I do with this mess? And, um, Actually, I had to do some some therapy before I could even look at them. I had to do some trauma therapy with a therapist, EMDR work, and that really helped like two sessions. And I was finally able to actually pull them out of the closet and start looking at it as a potential source material. And I talked to my mentor and she said, well, you know, maybe look at it more step back from it and like look at all the phrases and mathematically add up how many times did you use that word and how many times did you mention that drug and how many times did you see that doctor and use the mathematical equations to create scores and shapes and and that was a you know one perspective and i think she gave me a couple other ideas but that didn't quite fit for me and it it just felt i just it did, i couldn't do that so instead i looked at it and i looked at it more visually and i just noticed the patterns and and you know what i noticed right away was the density and the chaos and the repetitiveness of the lines and um but then also what i noticed as i was going through the years and i started recovering is i had what i called window days so those were days where, oh, I almost feel okay that day. Almost, I can do, so. I can go in the garden for a few hours. I can, you know, um, sing for half an hour. So I call those window days and I was tracking them. And so like one month I'd had three window days and that was a huge victory. And then the next month I had seven. And so I just, things like that, I, I just noticed patterns. And then um, I just allowed that, to just come through um, the lines. And so the, the, you know, I think the first one I did, um, I don't have it in front of me here, but it was just these really repetitive, I was just trying to get that sense of the repetitive, monotonous, um, monotony of, of all these horrible symptoms I was having. 
Um, and so I just did a lot of lines that were repetitive and monotonous. And there was something about that. Just, it just felt so good. <laughs> and then I just kept doing that. And, um, and then just following the lines and seeing where they went. And then, you know, at one point, I, I started bringing in a bit of color. So most of them are black and white, either on white paper or black, just because I've been in, I was enjoying that contrast. And I don't know, it's not like it represents anything as concrete as day and night. But um, I'm a, I'm a, I was a, a pretty serious insomniac. So, so I did a lot of these in the nighttime, especially as I was recovering too. So, so um, there's, there's that part, the day and night, uh, in terms of the white paper and the black paper and the lines. And then, you know, bringing in a little bit of inks and colors to represent, you know, those moments of, of light, of, 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 um, just feeling life again, <laughs> you know, and, and those window days and the moments of beauty and being able to sing for half an hour and being able to really taste a strawberry and, and just, yeah, you know, when life starts coming back, right? So, so I'm still working with that. That's, that's still coming. Um, but, but really, uh, now the, the lines too have taken a life of their own, right? And I'm just, they've really, um, they're taking me on a trip. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm, I'm always like, whoa, what, where are we going now? <laughs> where was, are we going now? I think I was browsing just sort of illustration accounts on Instagram because I like to draw and I, um, had read a little about, um, the Zentangle method and, you know, sort of a structured, uh, it's like, um, kind of a structured doodling sort of, uh, yeah, I know. Right. I want to know about that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a practice. It's like a, it's a thing. It's, um, oh. and you can, you know, there's books on it. You can like take classes in it. You can get certified in it. Um, it's called Zentangle and it's, uh, and I didn't know for a long time how I felt about it because it felt um, a little prescriptive in some in certain ways. And um, for a long time, I was like, "Is this is this actually like?" I, I realized in hindsight what it it kind of was liberating in the sense that let's say I feel like moving pen on paper, but I don't necessarily know what I want to do or where I want to go. Um, liberating this purpose driven, productive practice um from the actual act of of generously creating so i was reading a little bit about that i i had a few friends who sort of practiced and then they would like post their own drawings and of course instagram like people create their own um designs and then they'll share those um and you know the designs will go step by step in order to like build up to a pattern there's a lot of um geometric repetition there's a lot of sort of organic um line work as well. Um, mm. They, a lot of the Zentangle designs remind me of like mandalas mm. in some ways. So um, mm. these kind of organic geometries that intersect and interact with each other. Um, but what, but I, I liked that it uh, moved away from having to be representational. So it was an invitation for um, abstract production and for many people who maybe don't have an art background or aren't as comfortable drawing 
um, that shift can be a little unsettling. So that there was some sort of structure around that. I can see why that would be helpful for folks. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was I was also just really interested in in what illustrators were doing. Just uh -huh. what, what are people drawing these days? How are people going about drawing? I don't know. So I was just sort of like <laughs> scrolling around on Instagram, and then I saw your work, and I I wondered whether um, there was any sort of interaction there. But what your pieces were doing. And the fact that they were graphic scores for unsung songs, um, to me, I was like, oh, this is something else entirely. This is, um, it, it felt like uh, conversations that hadn't happened yet. Um, I saw your work and I thought about like, what are the three different songs happening in my head right now because of this one image? Um, so I remember, you know, talking about some of your drawings with some friends who are, who do have art backgrounds who are trained artists. And I was just saying like, you know, I'm still relatively new to understanding and interpreting. I mean, everyone's got sort of an aesthetic or, a, a, you know, uh, maybe taste or temperament towards certain kinds of art, but um, I really didn't know how to engage line work um, until this metaphor of um, unsung songs really, showed up and um it it felt like i i want to have these conversations you know i my first thought was i want i want to know what poets are thinking when they see these <laughs> and so um i just thought of you know several poets flashed to mind and i was i was thinking like every single one of them would have a slightly different take and i think that's so yeah. cool um and you know that's been a really exciting kind of counterpoint uh where as this project was coming together, I was really thinking, you know, how do I cast a wide net? How do I invite, how do I like demonstrate to other people how inviting I see these pieces? Oh. Um, and, you know, it really wasn't, I, it wasn't a tough sell because <laughs> the pieces themselves are so lyrical and poetic in and of themselves. Um, they invite um, kind of a, an exchange with the viewer. And that's, oh what I was noticing about them. And they, um, I got the sense that I, you know, I don't have to have a training in like abstract art to engage these pieces or feel something from them or understand how the line is moving, like what the line is doing on the page. All of that is so evident. It's communicating so clearly to me. And there's such a range of, you know, tensions, expressions, sensations that arrive mm -hmm. in all of these pieces. But I think my, like my favorite part was this is all nonverbal, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is all happening as an exchange between my projection and this line work. Um, so it's, it was really cool. And I was like, as a poet to not have words to kind of mm. use to talk about what's happening um, mm. was, was really thrilling to me. <laughs> um, I'm usually a person that has words for everything. And I love when like <laughs> something will tell me just how to shut up and I'm, I love it. I love getting to shut up. Um, but uh, when I reached out to uh, poets in my community to see who might be interested, I got such a fascinating response. I got responses from people who published books, uh, from people who were, you know, had their PhDs in poetry. And then um, on the other end, and folks who, just, you know, desperately wanted to write and you know, they were looking for the occasion. And I was 
you know, was so surprised that these pieces kind of afforded that occasion for so many folks. So the people who responded were really across the board. And to me, that that really echoed, you know, okay, I'm not the only person that was picking up on kind of the capacity of these pieces. Um, and so that, you know, poets wanted to play with this uh, has been really cool. And we had a few poets uh, make recordings of their own, um, of, you know, reciting their own poems. And uh, those are also going to be featured in the podcast. So I'm excited for you to get to hear those. Um, and everyone had such a different engagement with language, but also the image. Um, and everybody got a separate piece. So okay, no two people were responding to the same image. I was curious. Yeah. What, it, yeah. 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 It, I think if we had more time and if we could draw from a larger pool of poets, I think there's so much potential there. And one of the things I was thinking was, well, of the pieces that, you know, didn't get poetic responses, wouldn't it be nice to, you know, open it up to our readers or our listeners um, and invite, you know, further correspondence and see what happens with these pieces. But, um, you know, to switch from nonverbal to verbal, um, kind of also goes alongside this tradition of uh, ascemic and haptic poetics uh, is which in which you know a poem becomes purely visual where oh. something that looks like writing um, arrives as a poem and it's like you're saying it's like the line is doing the talking oh. um, the line was is moving is it's expressing itself and um, I think ascemic work similarly invites that uh, interpretive exchange with the viewer and um mm. and also not necessarily you know in and of itself it stands alone so it doesn't necessarily have to be translated or transmuted by a viewer it can simply be as it is mm -hmm. um so that's my my very excited stance i get <laughs> thrilled about how all of this came together Wonderful to hear all that. And sorry, you said ascemic, and there was another word. Haptic. Haptic. Okay, I'm going to, these are things I'm going to look up. Thank you. I'm learning all the time. Yeah. Well, which sort of, I, I was really surprised to um, learn about your relationship with poetry, kind of when you began writing in your journals as a younger person. Mm -hmm. um, do you have much of a relationship with poetry these days? Is because you know this project is so distinct from anything else and you were talking about how it shares this connection with um music but i'm wondering do you see these as poems and how do they how do you consider them mm -hmm. how do i consider them <laughs> <laughs> well i consider i i see them as poems now now that we've had this conversation and um my relationship with poetry now is pretty limited. I mean, like I said, I used to write poems, I used to write lyrics. Um, words were so important to me. Um, now I stumble on my words, you know, I have trouble with words. Um, but I still love words so much. And, you know, in addition to having been a songwriter and, and performed um, in that way, I did I, inter I, I collaborated with poets sometimes. So as an improviser, one of my favorite things to do is um, have, we'd have poets bring poems to the gig and just put them down in front of me. <laughs> 
and then I would pick up a poem and then I'd create an improvised song in the moment, right? So we did this one time, it was just really sweet. I can't remember, I had a gig for Valentine's Day. And so we invited people to bring love poems. And it could have been a poem someone wrote to them that they've saved for many years or just something they wrote themselves recently or any kind of love, you know, filial, uh, uh, whatever, different kinds of love. It didn't have to be romantic love. And it was amazing the things that people brought. Like we had prints that people brought and, and some, one person wrote this incredible love poem on this little scroll that I had to unfurl really slowly. <laughs> and, then, and then I sang it, right? Um, and one was completely obscene and I had to, I was careful because there were some kids in the audience and <laughs> it was just incredible, the variety and how that, that it was so beautiful because people would see me picking up their, their poem and then, you know, that interaction between the poet and me and the musicians who were working with me on stage, it was really, really beautiful. So I've done things like that where, you know, and also with um, more, you know, published po poets who have shared their, their poems and said, yes, you know, please use this in your improvisations. Um, so that, that's something that I've enjoyed and, and, um, and uh, yeah, so there's, there's that piece. Um, but mostly with these ones, in terms of the collaboration, uh, so far it's been with musicians. So I started workshopping like shortly after I had quite a few, I started workshopping them with a bass player, uh, James Meager and Joshua Zubat, who's a violinist. And we did a lot of workshopping and then we started performing them. Um, then we added to our band and we had some, some performances in Vancouver that were really wonderful. And um, it was going to expand. I was gonna take them to Berlin. Uh, just before COVID kind of shut everything down, I was supposed to go there and do a residency and had this idea of, um, it was going to be on this big ship. It, 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 it's pretty cool. And we were going to make some big ones, uh, rep reproductions of them and hang them and then have the improvisers uh, be able to move around the scores in the space with, you know, the audience was going to be around the uh, the edges and then the musicians could kind of see the scores from both sides. So that was the plan, but then then I had to cancel everything because of COVID. So so that might be coming in the future. That sounds um, incredible. I mean, particularly <laughs> for an audience member, but um, for the musicians, do you, so is it a brand new improvised piece every time you perform? Yeah, you know, and that's the nature of the kind of music that I do, you know, it's just like, it's never the same, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's uh, just created in the moment and, and it's not, you can't reproduce that, that performance. And so, you know, when I perform these scores with James and Joshua, we might perform the same visual score, but of course, the music's going to be different every time. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. I think there's I, I'm I think as somebody who like clings to structure as a way to kind of understand the world, um, the free fall and uh, the openness of improvised music is 
So wonderful, so exciting. Um, I love the anecdote about uh, people offering love poems as lyrics um, and kind of seeing what, what sticks and seeing what resonates in poetry workshops often uh, that'll be what happens. A person will bring a poem in for workshop and before, you know, the group starts digging in, uh, the facilitator will ask, like, everybody go around and, you know, pick out a line that, that resonates to you. And uh, I've, I have a friend who does that with her workshops and it's always so fascinating because the person who created that work has no idea what anybody else is going to say or respond to. Um, and to hear it back, echoed back to them, um, and to hear their own words in someone else's voice uh, yeah. is a pretty profound experience because you're seeing, you know, your own your own experience echoed, refracted, uh, and mm -hmm. you know that it's doing something, right? That you thought it was originally only doing something for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now this like circuit mm -hmm. has been built. Um, that's mm -hmm. so exciting. Yeah. I, yeah. Wow. I really wish there was a way to, to go see these performances in person. That sounds amazing. Well, you know what I'm, I'm hoping I, because I got, I just got another grant recently to record with um, eight musicians. Um, some are in Vancouver, but there's some in France, uh, Norway, Germany, uh, Sweden, I think. And so I'll be using my scores, these same scores that we're, we're working with. And um, so, for example, I'll, I'll have a score and I'm going to interpret it, an improvisation. Then I'm sending that score and my recorded interpretation to my friend in Norway. She'll, she'll look at the score and she'll record her part on top of mine. And then it, likewise, she's also going to get a chance to do it first. So she'll get a different score, visual score. She'll, she'll record her improvisation and then I record on top. So for each duet, we're going to be working with two scores each. And then we're going to, um, yeah, produce a CD of those recordings, as well as a published little book of the scores that we used. Um, so that's, that's a project that's coming up. And then I'm, I'm going to also share them on social media. That's part of it, right? Through Instagram or Facebook, I guess. So it'll be out there, um, you know, <laughs> at least the, the, yeah, the sound. And, um, you know, there's possibilities even within this project that you and I are, are doing so that once I see the words, it could be really wonderful, like when I'm performing live um, to use, if it's okay with the poets, of course, I'd get permission um, to interpret the, the words as part and show the scores, right? That, so we'd have the scores and then the, the improvisation um, using their words. Um, I'm very excited for you to get- a possibility. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> we're still assembling the proofs. So uh, we were waiting on a few poets to kind of submit their, their mm -hmm. drafts and uh, different poets had different approaches um, you know, some, I, I tried to narrow the window of time to, to, uh, encourage improvisation just because that was, that felt really integral to, you know, what your work has been thus far. Yeah. So, um, and I, but, you know, I know that that's not how all poets work and, uh, 
you know, some people really require a lot of time to gestate, mm. think about an idea, mm. really pick through language and find the words they want to use. Um, and, you know, others, you can set a timer for 10 minutes and just go and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, that tends to be more my speed where I have to, I have to hit the ground running to sort of see what comes out. Mm. Um, but I wanted to like, let the poets develop their own responses. So uh, I gave him about a week and said, you know, whatever you come up with, that's what we want to use. Um, and whether that's, you know, a slow build or a fast burn, however it shows up. Sure. Um, and, you know, by the end of the week, I got, I reached out to about 17 folks oh. who expressed interest. We got a dozen poems back, which, for, yeah, for poets given a week window, that's you know, normally it's herding cats. So this is, I am so proud of all these felines, like they're, <laughs> um, and, and I don't know necessarily what the process was for each person. Um, okay. You know, one poet was so drawn to the visual component that their poem sort of took on these different visual shapes and I got like three different versions and it was really cool. Um, then we had some more like traditional verse that showed up in couplets, uh, more like narrative frames. Um, and, you know, then we had one person who wanted to remain anonymous and, you know, share their words, but not anything else. Um, and I found that really fascinating because I think there was maybe, I don't know if there was some trepidation around sharing or if it was just like, I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. Um, but I, I love that that person chose to keep their words as part of our project and you know whether there was any concern or fear felt brave enough to say like we're gonna do this so i think i what's really cool is just sort of the gift of bravery that happens um yeah. Yeah. through the through the graphic scores and then through the the responses of these poets and i'm just i'm excited for you to get like see the I, whole oh my gosh i i'm just yeah i've got tingles up my spine just hearing about that i can't wait to see see what they produced yeah i had a quick question for yeah. you with with just the title unsung songs i'm mm -hmm. just wondering what that conjured up for you because like um, i mean i know where it comes from for me but yeah. i'm just curious what what it's yeah stirred for you it oh man i immediately thought about um musicians in my past who, so um, I was with somebody who was uh, a steel pan pianist for a long time. And um, he also arranged quite a bit of work as well. Um, and there was always something uh, really fascinating to me about the process of composition, just sort of watching it as an outsider. Um, my own Kind of experience with music was it's very like kitchen table um you know i took guitar classes in high school i know my way around a guitar but that's about it i'm i can't do karaoke like i can sing if i've got a guitar to hide behind but um so the idea of improvisation has always um enticed but scared me mm. so you know watching this person compose um, was so methodical, right? Like every, you know, and they're working with software. So at any point I'm listening to the same eight bars again and again, 
you know, through the wall or whatever. Um, but then I'm also fascinated by the layers and the uh, influences that would come in as this composition would continue to build. So that was, it was just really fascinating to witness from a technical standpoint. Hmm. Um, but when I first saw this phrase, unsung songs, I immediately thought of like, I, I thought about cacophony and harmony. Hmm. Um, I have no idea how I would approach creating music that would resonate with these images, but I heard, I heard howls. Like that was my first oh. kind of uh -huh. synesthesia with like the visuals. I, uh -huh. I was thinking of um, my favorite word in Latin is uh, ululare, like to howl, to ululate, oh, wow. right? Wow, I love that. So for me, I, I, saw, I saw vowels and sounds um, kind of emerging on the page and these unsung songs to me felt uh, like they could be organic, primal, and uh, I don't know. There, there was something also about the fact that they were unsung, like uh -huh. this desire uh -huh. to emerge this uh, kind of exigence to be interacted with. Um, and to me, that word unsung is really what got me was like, oh, this requires, like, this requires me somehow, or like, I, I need my imagination to play with these. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so it was a hard shift away from the compositional component of, uh -huh. or like the technical aspect of composition Mm -hmm. You know, when I thought about like, how, how do songs come together? I can imagine how pop music happens. You know how like people take their, their lyrics and sort of fiddle around and like see what happens when they turn them into stanzas. Okay, I get that. Um, but coming from this like purely nonverbal um, sound-based space uh, was like, it was fascinating. I got chills too. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, unsung songs really stuck with me. I, I don't know. I would be curious to know how um, the other poets responded to yeah. to the title. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I yeah. I know those that 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 phrase just came to me like at really early in the process before I was writing that first grant, thinking about how I wanted to move forward creatively. And I mean. I mean, one of the it, things is that when I do vocal improvisation, it, you, very I don't use words at all. It's more sounds, extended technique, like you said, howls and, you know, all sorts of really beautiful, but also extreme sounds with my voice. And sometimes I'll throw in a word or a phrase, but uh, or I'll deconstruct a word like I'll just think of. I'll just look at you know uh, an object in the room, and I'll just say, okay, I'm going to do an improvisation deconstructing that one word, the vowels and the consonants, and it just gives me source material. But for for the most part, when I'm improvising in that in in that context, it's it's wordless, um, it sounds, and but I but I am making a song. I am creating. It, it comes like people hear me singing a song, even though there's no words, right? Um, but uh, really, you know, uh, the other thing for that title was that it was coming out of that recovery place where I had 
lost or I felt I had lost, which I, you know, I hadn't really lost those years. But during that period, there was, I couldn't perform as much or at all. So, and I couldn't even sit down at the keyboard and, and sing anymore at, at times. Um, so I felt like there were songs, you know, in those years that I didn't get to sing. So it came from that really, that kind of very personal place. But it also made me think about, because I've always been interested in family history and all that kind of thing. Like when I did my master's of social work, I interviewed my grandmother and, and we collaborated on her story, life history <laughs> together. And I learned a lot about my family and, uh, you know, generations past as part of my exploration of kind of understanding things. Um, and, you know, learned about her unsung songs, you know, she, all her dreams. To, she wanted to be an actress and a singer, and that was just not feasible at that time for a woman. And, um, and, and what that did to her to mm -hmm. not be able to live her her light and and sing her songs um and what that and and how that got passed down through the generations that unhappiness um and many you know other other members of my family either because of physical illness mental illness early death different reasons why their light wasn't their creative light wasn't um able to shine and lots of tragedy there and then for me also it, it's just beyond that, you know, just like whether it's on the bigger societal and cultural levels, if people are prevented from um, living their full lives, their creative expression because of, you know, social, racial, gender, all those things, all those limitations and discrimination and all the unsung songs because of that. And, you know, even right, right now in Canada, you probably know about all the discoveries of the residential schools and all the lost children through that and yeah. all those unsung songs. Yeah. So for me, it, it, it started at, you know, this personal seed, my own, but it, it's, it's much bigger than, than me when I think of, of what that means to me, like, song is just like my voice teacher used to say you know voice is a word for many things so so he you know you could say because we hear people say oh I've lost my voice or I'm finding my voice or yeah you know you could substitute song right for that um what does that mean what does that mean Oh, how oppressive is the light. Runner, bring the coiling darkness back around. Morning star, lady of shade, dark matter raiment lend me a blade. Oh, how the empty eats always the all. Spinster, ring the roiling snarlness where once was ground. Prince of darkness, lend me your aid. Neural network wending, make trade. Beads to deck this pubic beard, as webs in the dawn do, this my own, my wending wool, hung with dying stars, like jewels in the scratch paint wires of tentacled, emptied, unlimbed night. 
nevermore consoling dark. O bitter the invading blaze burnt, the lost and winding unfound root, writhe, unwarped and unweft, crawling chaos, praised be thy name, against erosion, erasure blazing void, it swallows and surrounds your scattered reels, cosmic crinoid catching, culling each cruel pulses cloying, spun senescent snow, where the empty ends and your own self, sketched in spirals, begins again and again and again. O oh, knot of worms, fetch me through your ink-slip grip, urchin with a sea fan's arms, strain and sieve the endless pale open out of itself, and back in, back in, back in. O oh, hallowed, O oh, held, O feather-fingered finder, trace this your manifold tail back into becoming. Break once more the branch-scattered spool snake of your gut, every strain and tune of it gravid with relentless, unburdening birth of worlds. Chess Masters Baby Snake, The Hand, Stormy Petrel, names for chess players, but the chessboard is a spiral made of string, white against black. When Baby Snake faces off against the Gormalizer in round one, their pieces are slack noodles connecting each player to the twisting hole. The crowd gathers while the players, more accustomed to lessons of wood and stone, consider how to proceed. Baby Snake cannot hear the center of the thing, and the Gormalizer decides the string closely resembles a system of incandescent filaments. Strategy at this level involves a dizzying amount of sequencing and substitution. Enter the beast from Baku, the iceberg, and the northern Philidor, all grandmasters. Their prayers ping through tin can telephones, learning little except the fact that no one may take a turn without giving up the game entire. Baby Snake is still listening to the looping wave, and the Gormalizer is aware, now more than ever, of intestinal indigestion. The viscerally spiritual incandescent filament sound wave of a chessboard is finally tugged. No one knows who tugged it, and things unravel in such a way as to suggest shared trauma. The spiral linguini can be heard as a bleeding field traversing a park and the park opens to pristine water, trees and such, and it takes a full day to go around it, through it, to realize the field has opinions and a set of biases against the very ground that without it, there'd be no field at all. The TOA Podcast is a production of The Offending Atom, a literary nonprofit publishing new writing alongside innovative editorial engagement that invites readers into the context, history, and processes of literary creation. Each month, TheOffendingAtom.com launches new digital chapbooks, plus podcasts, and newsletters that take you deeper into the poetic weeds. Listeners can join the TOA community at www.theoffendingatom.com to help support the artist TOA publishes. TOA's podcast was hosted and edited by me, Nick Dominic. Music by Palberta. Our other editors are Andrew Wessels of Nivias, Ryan Winnett, and Whitney Allen.